I've already had two big gulps of coffee this morning, so I needed to move on to Diet Coke. Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we force all the heavy heroic lifting onto our offspring, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and I am joined by my co-host, the mistress of magic and illusion, Jessica Frazier. Ooh, <laughs> magic and illusion, it is I. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, your face when I read that descriptor, that was a... Uh... <laughs> Hands right over my mouth, I was like, oh no. <laughs> All right. Technically, neither of us have offspring. I have stepkids, but you know. <laughs> I have had a surgery to make sure I never have to do that. <laughs> yep. I don't know. It's kind of nice. We make the kids go weed in the garden every now and then. It's kind of cool. Like, like, mm, there good. you go. It's a real whole situation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, only <laughs> only without the poisonous lizards. Oh, good. I wasn't I sure like... what your backyard was sporting. No, I like holes. Like, the book was good. The movie was good. Like, yeah. Like, had a pretty solid soundtrack? Yeah. If it's poisonous lizards you need, like, I'm sure we could figure it out. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, if you were new to the show, the purpose of this podcast is to celebrate comic books in ways that are fun and informative. We always like to look at the coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments from comics, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And if you are enjoying the show so far and want to help us grow, it's always a huge help if you would rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts because that helps with discoverability. Also, Apple recently changed like their whole auto download system, which is really messing with a lot of podcast numbers. So, you oh, know. yeah, we were talking about how our numbers were a little low. So I don't know, friends, maybe check it out if you're thinking yeah. you're hearing less of us. Yeah, we don't want that for you. But also, if you enjoy the show, just like, you know, leave us a rating. That'd be great. But if not, that's also cool, too. We're we're clearly not making this for money. We do it because we love comic books and we enjoy each other's listen, company. <laughs> listen, Mike will tell you not to rate us, but I will tell you, please go and rate us. Full stop. <laughs> oh, man. So this week we are looking at Defenders of the Earth, the Saturday morning cartoon that took platinum age superheroes and updated them with the sleek, dazzling veneer of the 1980s. <laughs> But before we get to that topic, Jessica, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? So I watched something that came out recently, which is kind of new and different. Because mm. I don't see a lot of movies as they're coming out. Yeah. I like to listen to what the world's saying before I watch it. And then decide, you know what? Avatar is not worth my time. Oh, sorry. <laughs> did I say that out loud? So <laughs> I recently watched Leave the World Behind which oh, was okay. the Netflix film with Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke. The Obamas were involved in making it, by the way. It's by based on way. a book, I think. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's good. Like, it was a good movie. It okay. touched on racial tension, societal expectations, as well as the looming apocalypse and complete degradation of society once that happens. Right. So, all in all... Really good film, but it was one of those ones that I was like yelling at the TV because I wasn't necessarily super happy with the character's decisions in the moment. Mm, okay. So it's one of those ones where you're kind of like, why aren't you doing this? Like, pay attention to this. And it's like, obviously, right. there are people like that, you know, we don't pay attention to these things. Like, that's actually pr probably pretty accurate as far as that goes. But yeah. it is one of those ones where you're like, ah. <laughs> so. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah, I saw the trailer for that and I was like, oh, that looks interesting. But like at the same time, I'm like, that also looks like a bit of a downer. So I don't think I need to watch that right now in my current mental state. Yeah, no, yes, yes. I would say that it is a bit of a downer. But it's also really like one of those edge of your seat kind of tense movies as mm -hmm. well. And it really, since it does just focus on a very narrow core amount of characters... Right. You really get to dig deep into those characters, see their motivations, see kind of their thought processes. They have Julia Roberts just being really microaggressive. Oh, interesting. This, this black couple. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, oh, Julia, Julia. Yeah, like, you're America's sweetheart. Stop it. <laughs> but I mean, I think it was 
for the situation, I think it was a good portrayal of that, you know, that situation and how people react in society. I think it was really well done. Okay. Yeah. We'll add it to the list. Do it. (laughs) Well, what about you? I got a really cool book for Christmas called The Encyclopedia of American Animation Television Shows. It's by David Perlmutter and contains like thousands of entries for pretty much every animated TV show that has aired since 1948. I'm going to hold it up for you on the camera. Like this thing is that's thick. Yeah, it's 771 pages. I was going to say that looked like it was. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say a thousand, but I mean, yeah, it's fatty book close enough. It's really cool, man. So I ended up using it for some extra research for this episode. Oh. And basically, each entry includes a list of cast and characters, credit information. It has a brief synopsis of the series and then like a critical analysis. It's actually pretty interesting. Like there are additional details, including network information and broadcast history. Like I found this really fascinating. And it was one of those books that I had thrown on a wish list a while ago and I'd completely forgotten about. But it's really cool. And if you're someone who likes reading about this stuff i mean it's kind of a no-brainer to pick up that's cool that sounds you know what and honestly for what we do yeah super relevant i have a whole research section of my bookshelf at this point with like history of comics and animated shows i i have stuff about queer representation in both comic books and television there's a great book called hi honey i'm homo by matt baum that came out this year and that's great oh yeah I like that I'm building a research library. It's pretty cool. That is cool. Especially such like a niche research library. I know, right? <laughs> oh, all right. So are you ready to talk about Defenders of the Earth? Let's go defend some Earth. Yeah. Okay, before we get started, have you ever heard of the Defenders of the Earth before this or characters like Mandrake, the Phantom, or Flash Gordon? So. I'm obviously, maybe not obviously, but I've definitely heard of Flash Gordon. Yeah. But I was, you know, I mean, maybe name, but I I was not familiar with the other protagonists. I feel like I had seen the Phantom before, but mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have been able to put a name on him or tell you what he did. Like the Phantom is one of those characters we'll talk about later on, but he had kind of like a sort of resurgence in mm. pop culture representation after this. I mean, yeah. And Flash Gordon's like, he it's interesting he's one of those characters where like it feels like he's just kind of like always kind of permeated the cultural pop culture narrative right because he's like a foundational prototype for sci-fi heroes but we'll we'll talk about it like because the story for these characters actually starts over 125 years ago and it all goes oh. back to William Randolph Hearst you know the man who established a lot of journalism practices that are still practiced today for better or worse mainly for worse bloop I could teach a college class on how he laid the groundwork for yellow journalism and shaping public opinion through sensational reporting. I actually, I did part of one of my exit presentations for my history major on that. Mm. <laughs> and also, we've all seen the newsies. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with him, Hearst owned a bunch of newspapers and they started syndicating their content to other papers in 1895. And then he and his business manager, Moses Koenigsberg, rolled all their syndication activity under one umbrella. And supposedly it was named after Koenigsberg himself. This is actually a piece of information from the company's official website. To make it appear separate from his other operations, Hearst sought a distinctive name and a solution was quickly found in Koenigsberg's own name. King is the English translation of the German Koenig, and the implications were obvious. The new syndicate would reign over the syndication business. On November 16th, 1915, King Features Syndicate was incorporated. Yeah. So that summary actually isn't online anymore. King Features has a more streamlined version on their website, but you can find this description on archive.org. So anyway, King Features gave us a number of characters in the early days of the comic strips. We got Popeye the Sailor in 1929, Blondie in 1930, Flash Gordon and Mandrake the Magician in 1934, and The Phantom in 1936. And since the golden age of comics didn't start until 1938, that means that all of these characters come from what's known as the platinum age of comics. Now, Flash, Mandrake, and The Phantom are the core members of the Defenders of the Earth, but they all had pretty significant presences 
in American media for decades before the show launched. Flash Gordon is clearly the biggest hero in the series. Flash was created to compete with Buck Rogers, the character who had started out as a hero in Pulp Adventure magazine, Amazing Adventures. And then that had launched in 1929. And he was already getting some pretty significant adaptations in the form of novels, toys, movies, and radio adaptations. So it made sense that Hearst wanted to capitalize on that character's popularity by creating his own. So Flash was created and drawn by Alex Raymond. And the basic premise is that a handsome polo player named Flash Gordon wound up on the planet Mongo and immediately found himself in conflict with the planet's ruthless dictator, Ming the Merciless. And Flash was an immediate hit. It's widely regarded as one of the most influential American comic strips around. Case in point, Siegel and Schuster based Superman's costume on outfits from Flash Gordon. And Bob Kane's cover illustration of Batman on Detective Comics number 27, which was Batman's first appearance, was actually based on on a 1937 drawing of Flash Gordon by Alex Raymond. Oh, nice. Yeah, you can actually like find it really easily. It's like Flash is like swinging on a rope and then you compare it to the pose that, you know, Batman has on that cover and you're like, oh yeah, obviously. Okay. That's cool. So Flash himself just kind of remained ever present in the media after he debuted and has kind of stayed there up until this point. He was consistently appearing in comics from 1939 through the 80s. He had two TV shows, including an animated show in the 70s in an animated TV movie. And there was also a 1980 cult movie, which I have always seen people talk about it like it's a bad movie, but I actually enjoy the hell out of it because it's so campy and silly and it's objectively got one of the greatest theme songs of all time by Queen. <laughs> you know, the movie was actually critically well received, but it didn't do too well at the US box office. But by the time the Defenders of the Earth came around in the mid 80s, Flash was still a pretty relevant character. And then we had The Phantom, the Phantom was created in 1936 by Lee Fall for the adventure comic strip, The Phantom. The basic premise is that he's a crime fighter rocking a purple bodysuit and domino mask, wields dual pistols, and operates out of the fictional African company of Bengala. He's known as the ghost who walks because he appears to be immortal, but the truth is that he's actually a legacy hero. Like, I actually thought this was kind of cool. It's a role that is handed down from generation to generation, and the latest person to assume the mantle is Kit Walker, the 21st Phantom. So the comic strip was really interesting because sometimes it gave us flashback adventures telling stories of previous phantoms. And the phantom himself wasn't quite as prevalent as Flash Gordon, but he still had a pretty big presence. In the 40s, he had 15 movie serials. He also consistently had comics getting published starting in the 1940s. Originally, they were just collections of the newspaper comic strips, but it sounds like he started getting original comic books in the 1950s from Harvey Comics, and those just kept on continuing pretty regularly from a variety of publishers. Interestingly, The Phantom didn't really have much of a television presence before Defenders of the Earth. There was a pilot for a TV show that was filmed in 1961 that never got picked up, and thus it didn't air. It never aired on TV, but it did eventually get shown at a couple of comic conventions, including the San Diego Comic-Con. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was basically a known quantity at the time Defenders of the Earth aired, as the comic strip was still running. And then finally, we have Mandrake the Magician. He's, you know, I'm putting this in quotes. He's arguably the most obscure character of the three main characters, but he's still yeah. pretty. Yeah, like he's still a pretty big deal in comic book history. Like the Phantom, Mandrake was created by Lee Falk in 1934 and is noted by a bunch of comics historians as being comics first superhero. His original gist is that he fights crime with kind of fast acting super hypnosis i think but he eventually gains a number of actual magical abilities like flight teleportation shape-shifting he is kind of a day job working as a stage magician which apparently pays enough for him to both fight crime and supernatural threats and then he lives in this like yeah right and then he lives in like a high-tech mansion called xanadu on top of a mountain in new york somewhere um his look was like the prototypical stage magician, tuxedo, cape, top hat, spats, pencil, mustache, the works. Yeah. It's actually presumed that Mandrake was based on a real life mentalist named Leon Giulio, whose look was almost identical to the comic character. But in a weird twist, Giulio changed his name to Leon Mandrake so that he could capitalize on the visual similarity between him and the hero. What? Yeah, that is some <laughs> that's some good stage presence right there. I thought that, that was is great. Smart as fuck. But also, I'm an entertainer. Can we not pay me a living wage? Right. <laughs> Gosh darn it. Would it surprise you to hear that I went as Mandrake the Magician for Halloween one time? 
No, it wouldn't. Yeah. Did everybody right. think you were tuxedo mask? No, they all just thought I was like a magician. And I was like, mm, fair oh, enough. Oh, <laughs> I mean, yes. Yes, and. <laughs> yes, and. Mandrake also had a companion named Lothar, who is a prince from Africa who forsook his throne in order to accompany Mandrake on his adventures. Lothar is definitely problematic in his early representation. He is referred to as one of the first, quote, African, which I think means black crime fighters in comics. Right. But his early depictions aren't great. He wore a fez and a leopard skin and spoke really poor English originally. And that was how he existed in comic strips until 1965 when a new artist took over the strip and started drawing him in different clothing and had him speak proper English. But in terms of pop culture, Mandrake had a 12 part movie serial in 1939. There was a radio serial that lasted for a couple of years in the forties, as well as a TV pilot in 1954 that didn't get picked up. And finally there was a 1979 TV movie called Mandrake. That was, I'm going to be charitable and say it was, in quotes, inspired by the comic strip. Um, oh, because that's okay. I watched it on YouTube and it's like, yeah, it's like about a magician, but it's very 70s. Like, <laughs> okay, fair, fair. Yeah. Now, all three of these characters had appeared together once before the Defenders of the Earth, and that was in a 1972 animated movie called Popeye Meets the Man Who Hated Laughter, which is basically about a man scientist, which is basically about a mad scientist who kidnaps various comic strip characters. You can watch it on YouTube. It is one of the weirdest things I have ever seen. Like, it's also very basically animated. So I wouldn't recommend watching it just for fun, but it's a a kick. (laughs) Side note, and we're going to have to leave this in now. I do like that you said man scientist at first. Fair. We should start referring to, to things that we always think are like, quote unquote, typically male as like, oh, yeah, he's a man scientist. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> he's a man doctor <laughs> he's a man lawyer he's a man. god <laughs> oh man so now that we have covered all of this background info we can look at defenders of the earth this was a cartoon that came about in 1986 it was a joint creation of marvel productions and king features we talked about this all the way back in our first episode, which looked at Saturday morning cartoons, but Marvel Productions was an animation studio under the larger Marvel umbrella. And they had been behind some of the biggest cartoons of the era, like GI Joe transformers, my little pony. And in an extra bit of Marvel synergy, Stan Lee wrote the title songs lyrics, which I love. Like that's so wild. It's so wild. He was also a supervising story editor for several episodes as well. Um, That makes sense. But I think it's like nine episodes out of, the cartoons total of 65 episodes, you know, and I got to say like having, I couldn't watch all of the episodes because there's 65 episodes. Yeah. But they're all streaming on Amazon right now for free. You can watch them with advertisements. It's mostly faithful to the source material. Flash Gordon and his son, Rick flee Ming the Merciless and crash land on earth, warning Mandrake, Lothar and the phantom about how the emperor basically wants to strip mine our planet after he has exhausted the resources of the planet Mongo Flash's wife dies, resisting Ming's efforts to interrogate her. Basically it's said in some sources that he's trying to brainwash her, but like it's, it seems like he was trying to interrogate her for information. Yeah. And he was like trying to extract stuff from her brain, which, yeah, but we love a good fridging. So, you know, she died. Oh <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like immediately. Yeah, but it's totally cool because her mind is absorbed by a crystal that is used to power a new supercomputer that Rick is designing. The four heroes plus their kids form the Defenders of the Earth, and they largely square off against Ming throughout the series. Although there are other threats that pop up so that things feel fresh. Mandrake is basically a sorcerer in the show. The Phantom has the ability to, I don't know, he channels animal powers. I feel like we kept on seeing him shout about how he's channeling the strength of 10 tigers. Lothar actually feels like the best update because he's like a skilled mechanic and a master technician and an able fighter. I can't remember if it was on his action figure or somewhere else, but they refer to him as the Caribbean ninja, which I don't know how to feel about that, but I'm like, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. I had to think about that one for a second and and yikes. Okay. Cool, 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 cool. I do like that they note all of his skills in the theme song and that he's basically the linchpin of the group there's a line about how like with his skills around like we can't fail or something like that yeah 
Yeah. And then each defender has a kid. Flash's son, Rick, is a computer genius. The Phantom's daughter, Jetta, has some psychic abilities along with being an overall badass. Lothar's son, LJ, which I'm assuming is Lothar Jr., is the, you know, in quotes, streetwise one of the group, but he's also a skilled martial artist. And then Mandrake has an adopted kid named Kashin, who's younger, but also is being trained as the magician's apprentice. Kashin has a weird little alien in a Karen wig named Zuffy, who's like the last of the Zuffoid race. But like you look at him and he's he looks like a Mogwai in a Karen wig. I'm so glad you said it was a Karen wig because so true. And oh, yeah. then he's got different styles going on too, which was like, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, like you tell someone now that a Karen haircut and it's like, it's an immediate visual. You're like, oh, oh yeah. okay. So we're just rocking like the Kate Gosselin hair. Like, yep. Yep. Yeah. So Zuffy is sort of there for comic relief, but he also isn't on screen a lot because this is such a big ensemble cast and he's like mm-hmm. the most minor of the characters. Ming has teenage sidekicks in the form of his kids, Crotan and Castra. We don't really see them a lot in the episodes of the comics, at least not the ones that we watched. And then there was also a ton of tie-in merchandise. First off, we had like a dozen action figures and then several vehicles from Galoob. They actually look pretty sweet. Mm. Those are monumentally expensive these days if you try to find them on eBay, especially if you are shopping for inbox items, like, like hundreds of dollars. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. There were also trading cards, posters, buttons, board games, puzzles, a video game, and several kids' books. I actually remember reading one when I was six or so, and they came with audiobooks. Nice. You can watch YouTube videos where the book is synced up with the audiobook, which is actually really cool. Yeah. You know, the merch wasn't as substantial as stuff like G.I. Joe, Hasbro, or the DC Comics Superpowers Collection, which we discussed last year. But it's yeah. still pretty prolific. And like I said, you know, you can watch the entire animated series on Amazon now. We are focusing on the first four episodes as those are the ones that are most closely aligned with the comic itself. It feels like these issues are. I'm not going to say beat for beat retellings, but they're pretty close takes on the first few episodes. So based on the cover date for the first issue, as well as when the series debuted, it seems like the comic launched right at the same time because it has a cover date of January 1987, which with the lead time and everything else means it would have debuted right around the same time as Defenders of the Earth, the cartoon debuting. So my guess is that they were working off of earlier scripts. Right. And as a result, like some things changed because some of the things actually yeah. do change. Like sometimes it's minor, like a character's name, but in other ones, it's like there's very dramatic differences. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about at least one of them later because yeah. I yeah. called it out. <laughs> Okay, good. So issue one is covered in January 1987, published by Marvel's Star Comics imprint, which was basically the imprint that Marvel is using to put out licensed material for the most part aimed at younger readers. It was written by Stan Lee and then in quotes with an assist by Bob Harris. But Bob Harris is the only one credited in the CLZ comic app. So who knows? Stan Lee gets a lot of writing credits as well. Right. You know, that people would argue he doesn't deserve. Mm. Who knows? (laughs) It was penciled by Alex Saviak. It was inked by Fred Fredericks, colored by Nell Yamtov, and lettered by Ken Lopez, as well as edited by Michael Higgins. And this is a pretty straightforward adaptation of the pilot episode. Flash Gordon's spaceship crashes at Mandrake's mansion, and he warns Mandrake and Lothar of Ming's plans to conquer the Earth. Rick and his mother, Dale Arden, are held prisoner by Ming, But Rick manages to escape and encounters the alien creature Zuffy while his mom lets herself get captured. Mandrake, Flash, and Lothar head to Africa to recruit the Phantom to their cause. The heroes are captured by the native populace, and then they meet the Phantom's daughter, Jetta, who brings them to her father, and they immediately agree to fight Ming. The heroes fly off to Mongo and leave LJ, Kashin, and Jetta behind on Earth. We then cut back to Rick and Zuffy, who finds... Rick's mother as she is being interrogated to death by Ming. It's very weird. It's like a high tech chair with like light shining down. Rick Mm -hmm. tries to free his mom, but it's too late for her. Flash, Mandrake and Lothar arrive on Mongo and get into a dogfight with Ming's forces. Mandrake manages to cast some illusions and gets Ming's ships to attack their own palace. Flash and his friends rescue Rick and recover the body of Dale Arden while Ming escapes his dead world. 
And then as the heroes all mourn the death of Flash's wife, Ming projects a hologram and taunts Flash, noting how he took the man's wife from him and soon will take his world. And then Zuffy finds a glowing crystal in the snow. On Earth, Ming and his flunky set up shop in the Arctic. And Ming tells his son that his education and villainy is about to begin. And finally, back on Flash's ship, Zuffy reveals the crystal he found and Mandrake finds Dale Arden's consciousness inside it. Flash vows to protect the crystal with his life until he can bring his wife back. And then the group announces their team, the Defenders of the Earth. Jessica's just shaking her yes. head all the way through this. I'm just shaking my head. I'm just like, <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Calm down, Zuffy. <laughs> yeah, this issue is interesting. It like it actually eschews a bunch of extra plot points from the pilot episode. Like yeah. there's a whole third act where Rick gets kidnapped from his high school. And that's like a big thing where Ming's like, find right. out where the children are going to high school. And <laughs> he sends his little like kind of like disguised agents. I'm like, Oh my gosh. I, mm, yeah. I'm like, this is like the most effective ad for homeschooling that I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need any more homeschooled kids. I know, right? <laughs> and then like Jetta uses her psychic connection with her panther to have him stow away and figure out where Rick is. And it's like an abandoned public prison or something or f- abandoned right. federal prison. It's, but it's also like, <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> like, it's on this like, cliff that's like straight out of like a super villain's wet dream it's wild. it might as well have been alcatraz like they might as well yeah. have had to like get a boat to get in there because oh, it was like yeah dark it's and looming thunderclouds you know i was watching the episode and comparing it to the comic in real time and i was like oh they actually just kind of like abandoned this whole extra plot point that feels very superfluous and unnecessary so yeah, yeah i i think the comic <laughs> feels like a much more streamlined version of the story and it feels much stronger for it because it cut out a lot of weaker ideas that we really didn't need but were used to shoehorn in some action moments for these other characters so we can kind of see all their abilities on display yeah i agree i agree with that you know and that leads us to issue two which is cover dated march 1987 it was written by michael higgins penciled by alex aviak inked by fred fredericks Colored by Nail Yamtov and lettered by Ken Lopez. And this is based on the second episode, The Creation of Monitor. And it starts off with Rick and his father talking about the crystal containing Dale Arden's mind. Rick reveals he's been working on a supercomputer and basically incorporates his mother's memory crystal into the system. So she becomes the basis for the AI running it, going by the name Dinah X. And everyone is just okay with the fact that, like, the mother is gone, but she's in this nebulous, like, computer form. Like, everyone's cool with it. Yeah, and it's interesting because... no grieving period. She's just back. They make a much bigger deal of it in the comic than they do in the cartoon. Yes. Like... Absolutely. Like, in the cartoon, Rick gets this crystal, Mandrake detects the consciousness, and he's like, oh, great. Like, I'll use it to power my supercomputer that I'm building. And you're like, okay. Like, and and in this one, we get a big dramatic moment where, like, Flash is mourning his wife in the first issue. And yeah. and then he's like, I'm going to protect this crystal and eventually I'm going to find a way to bring back my wife. I don't think we got that in the cartoon. Correct. No, I don't remember that from the cartoon. Yeah, I don't know. Either. Yeah. So after this, the Phantom basically is like, yo, we need a real headquarters because they've been operating out of Mandrake's mansion. We then cut to Ming, who is supervising construction of his new headquarters. And then he gets an alert about enemy ships entering the atmosphere, which it turns out the ships belong to some aliens called the Krill, spelled C-R-Y-L who are friends of Flash Gordon. Their leader, Morbius, agrees to build a new headquarters capable of allowing the Defenders to monitor their entire planet. Morbius is actually given a different name in the cartoon, so that's like another one of the differences. I think he was... I can't even remember. It was something I can't remember what he was, but he was something, and I was confused. (laughs) Yeah, no. So anyway, he goes by Morbius in the comic. Um. At this point, Ming attacks the Krill ships and Mandrake's mansion, which leads to a big battle. Mandrake's son, Kashin, gets put out when he basically tries to help. And Mandrake literally is like, you're too young, go hide. And the kid runs away in the middle of the battle to like the mountainside that is next to the mansion. And then he's targeted by one of Ming's ships. And the Iceman robot crew pursues the kid and Zuffy into this massive cave underground. They eventually melt in a lava pool. And it turns out like the mountain is a mostly dormant volcano, but the cave leads into Mandrake's wine cellar. And that's where Jetta discovers Kashin. The kids then try to talk to the defenders, but Mandrake's like kind of shitty. 
and is like, we're doing important work. And Jeddak calls him out and she's like, Kashin has important stuff to say too. let him say it. Yep. And the defenders then acknowledge that the cave might be the best place to build a base. And the Krill basically construct the base in record time just before Ming attacks again. He destroys the mansion. There's a whole thing about how Dinah X helps the defenders trick Ming's forces into thinking they destroyed the base. Jetta and the Phantom are relieved to hear that the lava within the mostly dormant volcano will actually make the environment feel physically similar to Africa in terms of humidity and heat. (laughs) And, you know, that was like a whole subplot in the cartoon episode, which I just did not care about. Right. And then in the final bit, we see Ming cackling about how the Earth is ripe for the taking now that the defenders are out of his way. (laughs) Right. Issue three was cover dated May of 1987. It's again the same team as last issue. And this is based on the fourth episode, A House Divided. The issue begins with the Phantom marveling at how his daughters managed to create a facsimile of just Africa's environment. Like, you know, just Africa. Like We've talked about this before. The nebulous Africa. Yeah. Back in the 80s, pop culture was just like Africa. (laughs) It's like, okay. I don't know. It's a whole continent, guys. That's a whole ass continent. Yeah, exactly. The Congo jungle is what they're aiming for. (laughs) So anyway, the environment's been recreated complete with a jungle and the skull cave, which the phantom kind of uses as his like home, I guess, even though it's just a cave with a throne. And all of a sudden the phantom has a bad feeling about the Bandar natives that he protects back in Africa. And it turns out the feeling is based on the fact that his brother, Kurt Walker is in a Bandar village telling the leader Garan that it's time for somebody else to become their master now that Kit Walker has left, which was immediately like gross. But then the next bit is Grand says like Kit is not their master. He's never been. He's their friend. And that Kurt was never worthy of the Phantom's legacy. Kurt has a couple of goons with him, but they leave. And then as they're leaving the village, the goons betray him and throw him in the river. Kurt washes ashore at the mouth of a cave where he finds a dead supervillain, I guess. Like it's a skeleton dressed in an obviously evil costume sitting on a throne that literally has horns and fangs carved into it. And it's surrounded by skulls. And then Kurt looks at this and is immediately like, yo, this outfit slays and puts it on. And then he feels power surging through him, announces that Endama is reborn. And then we go back to the village where Kurt's goons are robbing the treasure hall while the village is preparing for some kind of celebratory feast. And then suddenly a thunderstorm manifests. Kurt flies down out of the sky and it turns out he can control the weather. He basically it's like he's like a villainous version of Storm from the X-Men. He tells the villagers that they have nothing to fear from him. He uses his new powers to take down the goons and then immediately tells Garan that the village needs to swear their allegiance to him or they will suffer the same fate as his enemies right before he melts the goons with lightning and then tells the village they need to accept him as their master and then summons a blizzard and says he's going to keep it at the village until they do so. It's like, like that all happens in like a page. It's like the fastest heel turn I've ever seen. It's wild. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. Oh man. The defenders then get an alert about how the weather has gotten really weird. So the Phantom and Jetta fly back to the village in Africa before lightning blows their skull copter out of the sky, which like, okay, I guess we're just taking a two-person helicopter to fly from New York to somewhere in Africa. Cool. (laughs) The two limp back to the village. They find out what's going on, and the Phantom then goes to the Skull Cave where he finds Kurt sitting on his throne. The two have a big battle. The Phantom eventually pulls off his brother's helm, and it turns out Kurt's now starting to rock a demonic visage underneath. Like He's got horns. His hair is like almost gone. Kurt is horrified. The Phantom says that the defenders can help him, but Kurt says it's too late. And then he just like goes up in a flash of flame. There's a vague line about how his power consumed him. The Phantom and Jetta give the villagers a communicator that's basically a direct line to the defenders HQ. And then we cut to Ming, who's hatching a plan to conquer the earth with a bunch of people he's kidnapped and is turning them into an army of what are called frost men. And this issue kept the broad themes of the episode, but it's pretty different in the details and the TV show. Oh yeah. Like Kurt is given his powers by Ming and then he's told that his powers will only last for 24 hours. And then we get a bunch of flashbacks of Kurt and Kit as kids, particularly with like how Kurt 
like has some sort of like contest of like physical prowess with Kit that he cheats and like throws his brother off a mountain. Like he basically tries to murder him. They were supposed to work together, and he was like, I'm going to be the one who's the phantom. Yeah. Because that was how they passed it down. Yeah, exactly. And then their dad is like, oh, I had my assistant following you guys and watching, and uh, he rescued Kit. And and then Kit steps out from behind the throne in a tiny phantom outfit, which I thought was kind of adorable. It was so funny. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, you know, they basically have another mountaintop battle, and an but like it's basically Kurt challenges Kit to another thing where he's like, I need you to prove that you're worthy of the Phantom legacy. And they have their race up the mountain. And then right. there's a battle. And then Kurt falls seemingly to his death, but he uses his weather powers to save himself at the last second. Mm-hmm. Whatever. It's it's fine. I well, I think the comic is so much stronger than the cartoon episode because yeah, I agree. Like it feels much more faithful to the overall vibe of the Phantom. And I don't know. It's it's just it feels very silly where like Ming is sitting there and, you know, granting superpowers to people who like, you know, clearly there's this like quasi mystical vibe to the Phantom and whatever. Right. And then he did that thing where he was like he showed up the very beginning of the episode and they showed up at the very end. He's like, I'll be back. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a whole like Cobra Commander kind of vibe where it's like, well, he's the big bad guy. So we got to feature him a little bit. You're like, do you? I don't know. Got to be there a little bit. We see that a lot. Yeah. All right. And then we get to issue four, and this is cover dated July 1987, and it features a story called Magical Child. It doesn't appear to be based on any particular episode. It's got elements of a couple of different episodes, but I couldn't find any one that it was particularly mirroring. It's got the same creative team as issues two and three, but Alex Siviak was also co-writing the issue. And this begins with Lothar telling Rick and Jetta to have a good time as they're leaving Mandrake's mansion to go to a a video laser concert. Like, okay. If that isn't a sign of the fucking times. Yeah, and that's actually, that was something I kind of enjoyed about this overall setting is that it's like sort of a utopian future. Like, you know. Right. Like a vague point in the future where things are generally pretty good. Like there's. You know, there's spacecraft that are accepted as just like kind of a, a real thing. And I like the architecture. I like the the outfits and the technology. It's it's a little bit, I don't know, like it's it's sort of cyberpunk, but not quite. Like, right. I don't know. It's just kind of, right. it's cool. I like it. Yeah. Anyway, Mandrake and Kashin are then walking around the mansion to survey the damage from the battle in issue two. And Mandrake reflects on how he found the kid in a tiny foreign village. <laughs> like, okay. And was drawn to him because of the kid's raw psychic ability. The two go into Mandrake's inner sanctum, which is apparently the only room that's still intact after Ming's attack. Mandrake tells his son about how he lost his family while they were on an expedition to Tibet. And then he was rescued by monks who brought him to their college of magic, where he then learned his skills. I like, I swear to God, shaking my head so hard. I might get whiplash. I like, It's such a trope where it's like the orphan who is rescued by like mystical people in Tibet It's or Nepal, one or the other. It's just always, it's such a trope. (laughs) Okay. And then he becomes powerful and I am Batman. Oh, we're not. That's wrong, wrong one. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, (laughs) it's weird because like it was such a thing with magic characters. You saw that with Doctor Strange, with martial arts, Mm -hmm. case in point is Iron Fist. And, you know... I get that at the time it was very accepted during that era of storytelling, but from a modern lens, it's not great. So right. anyway, Mandrake then mentions he had a friend named Dr. Dark who was like his bestie until he chose to go to the dark side of the forest for unknown reasons. And then they work on training Kashin's psychic powers. It's a lot of dialogue and not much action for several pages. And yeah. Meanwhile, we finally see Dr. Dark, who is trapped in another dimension and is served by demons before a portal appears and he's pulled back into the real world by Ming. And by the way, so Dr. Dark doesn't show up for a while in the cartoon series and in the comic, he's got kind of like a Jonah Hex looking face, like half of it's scarred and weird looking. Right. And the cartoon, that's not the case. Like it's the same outfit, but his face is totally normal. Mm, Okay. That's interesting. 
Dark at this point says that he thirsts for vengeance against Mandrake and Ming's like, good news. He died when I attacked the base and Dark goes, you're an idiot. I can sense he's still alive. Ming gets grumpy when he is served some video evidence of Rick and Jetta at their concert. And then Dark teleports away to deal with his nemesis and Dark arrives at the mansion. He immediately incapacitates Lothar and battles Mandrake. The two are pretty evenly matched until Dark spots Kashin and then captures him. And he tells Mandrake he's going to kill the boy unless Mandrake surrenders. And then Mandrake does so. And Dark, like he goes full Bond villain. He like paralyzes Mandrake and bonds the magician's life force to some candles in the room. And he explains it. He says like that Mandrake will die when they burn out. And then Dark teleports away because he doesn't feel the need to watch. And then Kashin psychically connects with his dad and he's able to vaguely channel his powers and declares ours is a flame that will never go out, which then disrupts the death spell. Mandrake and Kashin tell the defenders about what happened. And then Rick calls his dad from the concert and tells them they're on the way back. But Jetta discovered that Ming has an army of men that he is psychically controlling. Flash notes that Dark and Ming seem to have formed an alliance and are about to unleash their master plan. So it's up to the defenders to stop them. And we get a note saying next war in all capitals. Except. And then that's it. This is the last issue of the series. And shout out to our friend Dottie on Twitter who first told me about this and was talking about how like this is a very common thing with a lot of star comics is like they sit there and say something along the lines of next war. And then that's it. (laughs) So ridiculous. Yeah. So. Like I said, despite the fourth issue ending on a cliffhanger, this was the end of the series. I couldn't find anything about the sudden cancellation, but I I think I know what happened based on some reading between the lines. The animated series ended in May of 1987, which is right around the time that this issue would have been published with the July cover date. My guess is the comic wasn't selling well enough for King Features and Marvel to keep the comic going, so they just kind of let it fade out of existence. And like I said, the show only lasted for one season, but it got a total of 65 episodes. It started airing in September of 1986, ended in May of 1987, and there doesn't seem to be any documentation about why it went off the air, but my theory is that it's because we were at the point when the Saturday morning cartoon and associated toy boom were past their peak and they had started to like seriously decline. The original Transformers cartoon ended a little later the same year. G.I. Joe's original series had ended in 1986. Gem ended in 1988, and even that feels weird because... They only got 12 episodes for the final season. So like it feels like, you know, really they saw the writing on the wall in 1987. Right. If you watch the episode of the toys that made us focusing on He-Man, this is the era when He-Man action figure sales were like really falling off too. Like, I think it was like hundreds of millions of dollars. And then it like, it was like almost a, a vertical line down. And, you know, this is all supposition, but it seems like a safe guess that this was a new brand that launched when established ones were already starting to really struggle. And then everyone involved just decided to walk away when the reception wasn't as big as they were hoping. Yeah, that makes sense. So I've got a couple of questions, you know, that we can, we can make this a little bit of a book club episode now. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So how did you feel about the cartoon overall? Like it was fine. Yeah. I like I watched the first four episodes because that's what you told me to watch. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I was not super impressed, but I didn't hate it. Like, I did find myself doing other things while watching it though, just because I felt like yeah. I needed the additional stimulation. <laughs> yeah, it's like man, it's very easy to put on in the background. And like it was funny because like I had it on the background. It's like, oh, I can kind of pay attention to this. And then I was like three episodes in all of a sudden. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck just happened. It was all You're like, wait. <laughs> It was very forgettable. It really was, though. Yeah. There were things where you were talking about them again, and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that did happen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, like, you had told me, like, it was of its time when you mentioned, like, you mentioned this prior to me (laughs) watching it. You really meant it. Yeah. There were lots of racial tropes being used. Of course, the nebulous Africa that we talked about. That whole white savior situation. I mean, the phantom. Yeah. You know. It feels like every other cartoon in the 80s, though, if that makes sense. Like, if you were going to combine every, like, superhero cartoon in the 80s, I feel yeah. like this would do it. Yeah. Like I said, it felt very of its time. And it's got established heroes. It's got cool teens for the kids to connect with. And then there's the comedic, cute animal sidekick. It's 
it's also very chaotic in the first few episodes. I watched some of the later ones and didn't hate it. Like I liked the vague message of environmentalism because the whole shtick with Ming is that he wants to harvest our natural resources, but like it's ultimately pretty forgettable. It's not right. It is by far not the worst thing that we've ever watched for the show. No, like I'm looking at you. Chuck Norris's karate commandos. Oh, my God. I literally was thinking about that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. The Encyclopedia of American Animated Television Shows, which I talked about before this, says pretty much the same thing that it was forgettable, but they're actually a lot harsher about it. So I'm going to read you the entry because this is kind of great. Nice. Yes. An odd attempt to reinvent three long running comic strip stars from the King Features archives for television animation consumption. Most of the heroic heavy lifting was done by the younger characters because the older figures were less inclined to do that sort of thing. Mandrake in particular was portrayed as an egotistical cowardly snob, a far cry from his original incarnation. Aside from the groundbreaking episode where Flash Gordon's son Rick battled his drug addiction, there wasn't too much really worthy here. Flash Gordon had been featured more effectively before in his own series, while the Phantom would later be featured in Phantom 2040. Jeez Louise. I mean, I mean like, it's bit. not... Yeah, it's a, it's not an unfair criticism. I, I watched some of the later episodes. Agreed. I feel like they got better. There was a cool one where Jetta ends up assuming the role of the Phantom when she thinks her father's died. Oh, okay. And I liked it because she was actually like pretty badass. That's good. She, they did make her a good character. I didn't watch the one with Rick. I actually liked her a lot. I thought she was the best of the four kids. Same. I thought she... she was the most kind of defined. I also liked how in the comic they made the kids look more like kids and they were clearly going off of like earlier character designs because I liked her outfit a lot more in the comic as opposed to in the TV show where she's like in a black jumpsuit. Like, Yeah, it was weird. Yeah. What about the fact that we were watching the adventures of platinum age characters who've been updated for the eighties? Do you think that the update concept worked well? I mean, I think it worked well enough. Yeah. They were able to reintroduce the characters and make the animation style one that the audience would be familiar with. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it definitely had that 80s vibe to it. Yeah. And I mean, Flash Gordon, like we were talking about, he's a pretty recognizable character across the ages. So I feel like that was a good bridge to reintroduce him and to bring the other characters with him. Yeah. I, I also felt that the updates mostly worked. The character who felt the most out of place was the Phantom. And I think that's because they kept forcing narratives involving his commitment to, you know, in quotes, Africa. But right. the other problem is that he is a character who used guns and has a shtick of, you know, murdering pirates. And that wouldn't really translate to a kid's cartoon. He felt the most out of place. Right. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Like, other than the fact that we didn't really meet the kids' mothers, what did you think of the family dynamics? <laughs> I mean, I thought the whole thing had a very <laughs> Professor X vibe about it with them, like, oh, yeah. collecting children to train. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Other than Jetta, I was like, where are these children from? Like, who is just letting them hang out in a house with a bunch of dudes in spandex? Like, to be clear, yeah. the spandex isn't necessarily a red flag. But you're, you're, to your point, like, where are these kids' parents? Like, where are they? I mean, they're sitting around the supercomputer and telling them they've got grown-up shit to do. Like, Oh, my mm. God. Right? They're like, don't open the door. Yeah. <laughs> we will be at work. <laughs> Don't open the door for anyone. There's mac and cheese in the pantry. (laughs) Yeah. Like I felt it was whatever. The Phantom seemed to be the most concerned about his kids well-being, to be honest. Like he seemed like the most devoted dad. Where like. He was genuinely there. Yeah. Like there's a whole thing where she's like, I'm really not enjoying this headquarters because it doesn't feel like our home. And he's like. Yeah. "Hmm." And he's like, I understand that. We, We need to figure out like a solution. And then, you know, a solution presents itself through no actual work of his own. But but at least, you know, he's he's vaguely concerned with his daughter's well-being. (laughs) Right. You know, Mandrake, I think, was easily the worst parent, though. He just seemed like not really concerned about Kashin. And then, like, it just it felt so sadly unsurprising that the only mom we ever met is the one who was murdered literally halfway through the pilot episode. And she's like, we can't have moms. We're not allowed to have moms. Everyone's an orphan. It's just, it's kind of wild to me because like Dale Arden is like such a massive character in the Flash Gordon mythology. Like, it's just like, oh, okay, I guess we're just killing her off. And then, hmm. We really love women in our society. We really do. Which is why we like to kill them off and hurt them and, you know, injure them when they're acting. (laughs) God. 
Oh man. Who was your favorite and least favorite characters in the show? I mean, I would say Jetta was my favorite, like we talked about. She yeah, me too. Panther. Like, I'm hella jelly about that. I'm not going to lie. Like, yeah. I may have a lamb on the property, but she's got a panther. <laughs> but, like, I don't know. Everyone else was just, like, meh. Yeah. Like, like I said, Mandrake is giving, like, big tuxedo mask energy, but with, like, dopey stage illusionist vibes. Yeah, he actually does stuff, but, like, yeah, it's... Like, you know, I was supposed to tuxedo mask where he'll show up and then I'll be like, my work is done. And everyone's like, you didn't do anything. My work though. is done. He just throws a flower and he's like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was a kid and I watched the Sailor Moon cartoon. And I was like, so he just shows up and he provides like a distraction for a second by throwing a rose that like scratches someone on their arm. And then he's like, all right, right? I'm done here. And you're like, what? Okay. Listen, it makes a cool sound and yeah. it does like a shing. <laughs> Oh, man. And I guess we probably should not talk about Moonlight Knight, the vaguely Middle Eastern themed character that he eventually becomes, right? Nope. 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 That That didn't happen. Mm -mm. It did happen, but let's pretend like it didn't. No, my stepdaughter and Sarah have been watching that show pretty pretty regularly lately, which Sarah's super excited about because she's a huge Sailor Moon fan and she's so stoked that her daughter is into the show now. But it's like... It's like, oh man, Tuxedo Mask is a jerk. Yes. But, yes. I mean, like, yeah, like I, I'm completely on board with this. I was kind of indifferent to everyone. I do think that Jetta was the best just because she actually felt interesting when she was on screen. I expected to hate Zuffy, but he's got so little screen time. I kept forgetting about him until he would reappear. And literally, I was like, oh yeah, it's Tiny Karen. That's right. That yeah. is right. Yeah. And then like, like you said, like Mandrake is actually like the least likable character. He just, he comes across as an asshole and he's like super haughty and he's a jerk. He also isn't very nice to his adopted son, which was really lame. So like, all right. Yeah. How do you feel about the comic? Like if you didn't have familiarity with the cartoon, do you think you would have grasped what was going on? I actually feel like they explained more in the comics than in the series in like a more concise way. I like the narrative about the Phantom's brother in the comics versus the series. I think Mm -hmm. that the story made more sense and it didn't feel like as chaotic. Yeah. And while it didn't give as much backstory about the reason that the Phantom was chosen over his brother, Kurt, which what a villain name. Am I right? Yeah. In the show, he was like, Kurt. And I was like... I know you're trying to sound really intimidating, (laughs) but your name is, your fucking name is Kurt. Okay. I don't know what you want to do with that. Like, yeah. No, I thought, I thought that origin was so much better in the comic. Yeah. The race to the jewel was such a silly masculinity test. And I'm honestly glad that they dealt with it differently in the comic. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like the comic was actually more successful in terms of storytelling. Like I, thought they were much more cohesive and you know in quotes believable i really liked the art too like it felt very faithful to the platinum era of comics while also feeling like exciting and detailed enough to work with modern audiences like you know yeah and that said mandrake was still an ass in the comics so hmm. awful yeah (laughs) well so even though the defenders of the earth wasn't as big of a cult brand as other 1980s cartoons have gone on to be we've still seen a couple of comebacks back in 2014 dynamite published a five issue series called king's watch which starred mandrake phantom lothar and flash i haven't read this but it sounds interesting apparently they're not just fighting ming they were also dealing with characters from across the larger king's feature universe and then there was a 2016 sequel called king's quest i don't know maybe at some point we can read it and do an episode talking about our feelings for it totally On top of that, the main characters all had later comic book adaptations. The next episode, we're actually going to talk about another updated take on one of those characters, but I don't want to spoil it yet. So yeah, friends, we're looking at a part two kind of kind of continuation, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? Unlike this comic series, we will be following through. Yes. (laughs) So before we move on to brain wrinkles, do you have any final thoughts about the Defenders of the Earth? I mean, no. I mean, I think it was, you know, it was of its time, like you said. I think it was, like, it was fine. But it was, mostly it was forgettable. Like, especially the cartoon was mostly forgettable. And it honestly, like, the first few episodes did not really hold my attention. Yeah. (laughs) As other shows may have. 
it, it wasn't it wasn't the wor- again was not the worst cartoon we've ever seen. No, it's not the worst comic. Again, we've we're looking at either. you, Chuck. <laughs> but same, same. Yeah, I like I'm kind of of the same opinion. I weirdly have a nine six slabbed issue of issue number one. Like I the face I'm giving Mike right now. I'm like, yeah. of course you do. But also what? Why? I So here's the thing is I found it. Uh, there was an online auction that I found and it was going for nothing. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. That was kind of cool. Like, I'm very I much mean, into listen, 80s that cartoons. Makes sense. Like, yeah, I but it's one of those ones where now that I've read all this, I'm like, yeah, OK. Like, and, you know, <laughs> it's not the pride and joy of my collection or anything. <laughs> but yeah. <sighs> What do you say we move on to Brain Wrinkles? Let's shimmy over. All right. Okay, we are now at Brain Wrinkles, which is where we discuss one thing that is comics or comics adjacent that has been kind of sticking around in our head for the last couple of days. So, uh, Jessica, why don't you kick things off? I'd like to talk about how the weatherman lied and it's raining. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) We are currently, this is going to be airing about a month after we record it. Yeah. We are currently dealing with like a deluge of just rainstorms in the Bay Area. And it's it's great, but it's also weird. And Jessica lives in a house with a tin roof. <laughs> I do. It's true. It's like super problematic for recording. I did build a shed, which I'm still working on. So I will actually have like a little recording studio and not this like blanket fort I build for myself. But if you guys are hearing rain in the background, especially on my side, like please understand like i built my own house she's not like you know <laughs> her house is rad she, my house is cool she's shaped like a pirate ship but also like watertight not quite <laughs> <laughs> it's always a little bit of a concern <laughs> yeah all right actual brain wrinkle actual brain wrinkles i've been thinking about colors actually okay. and i've been thinking about color in specifically comics but overall in media and how we use color which is always really interesting and it always kind of it changes you know through mm-hmm. the time frames and everything like we had the kind of like kind of really bright primary colors of the 80s and once we were able to start mm-hmm. doing more things with the color on the screen it, things got a little bit more subtle but I also have been thinking about color and accessibility because mm. not everybody can see color Hmm. And if you think about some of these comics, taking away the color aspect of them and how confusing they must be for people who can't see color when there's so much going on in the frame. And I I wonder how much I mean, I'm sure the early comics, nobody was thinking about that. But I wonder now when people are making comics, how much thought is put into making it accessible for people who cannot see color differences like that or have limited color that they can see yeah that's a that's a really interesting thought i've never really considered that yeah i don't know i was just thinking about it i saw dan had posted some of his his black and white kind of daredevil stuff that's coming out recently which is cool but i was thinking about it's neat to see it in black and white and it works really well Mm -hmm. but there are some comics that would not work like yeah. almost at all if you took the color away or if you weren't able to oh. see that. Yeah. So. Have have you read any of Black Armor yet? The the new Daredevil series? Not yet. Read? It's not bad. Not like I'm yet. really no, enjoying I've it. Just so gotten far. little pieces of it, but I'm excited to pick it up soon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I've got it on my pull list at my shop and it's it's fun. I like it. Nice. Nice. I'll have to go see if Outer Planes, because I didn't I, I don't have any pull lists right now. Mm. So I'll have to go see if they have any. Yeah. Well, what about you? So I'm actually thinking about recent comic news, which is not something I normally talk about or, or think about a lot because I, I just like, I pay attention to the news in general. I do not pay attention to most comic book news. It's weird. Like, right. But even I'm aware, which is funny, which is saying something. So the last couple of weeks before Christmas, there has been a scandal going on with CGC, the third party group that does all the, the grading and slapping and all that, where it turns out some internet sleuths discovered that certain comics were selling for a fuck ton of money. And it turns out that they had serial numbers. And when they looked them up, they they looked at the serial numbers and it was a different comic in the slab. And so oh. 
so like, you know, it basically it's, it's very, it's very convoluted this whole process, but it sounds like someone was buying these comics in really high grades and then swapping them out for comics that were worth less and then sending them back into CGC and saying, I want to get them reholdered with like a different label for whatever reason. And so CGC either wasn't checking it or there, you know, there were people mm. accusing them of, of doing an inside job. And, oh, okay. And, and like, you know, and so suddenly it was like, they, they would have this, like, I think one of them was like the issue that Spider-Man's black costume debuted and, you know, it was like graded as a nine, eight. Uh, and then it was yeah. sent back in and reholdered and labeled as a Mark jeweler variant. Yeah. So Mark jewelers were basically they're they're variant comics for lack of a better description, but they were comics that had an insert displaying an advertisement for this company's jewelry. And like, they were like kind of four pages long and they were usually sold like in military bases in the U S and overseas. Like, because like, you know, theoretically soldiers would want to buy jewelry for someone special back at home and they're a little bit thicker. And the thing is, is because of this variant nature, they're considered very rare. And as a result, like key issues that have these inserts are really sought after. So effectively, like whoever was doing this was getting these issues reholdered and, you know, swapping them in for like lower grade copies, but they were getting labeled with like nine, eight higher some like i think there was like a nine nine at one point but don't quote me on that and it was like kind of this firestorm that was brewing throughout a bunch of different communities facebook groups youtube was having all of a sudden a bunch of videos about this showing up and cgc just didn't say anything for like weeks they finally put out a statement acknowledging that it happened they're like oh yeah so we're investigating it we've hired a private investigator Based on our research, it's only a couple of hundred issues. I'm like, only a couple hundred issues. Okay. I'm like, cool, guys. Like, mm." (laughs) Like, I, whatever. I think it's going to be real interesting to watch how or if this affects third-party grading and all that because grading has become such a thing. Right. Especially for key issues. It's oftentimes really hard to find a nice copy of like a high-value key issue that isn't slabbed. Man, see, I was going to send some stuff in and now I'm a little leery. Yeah, I don't know. I and, and at the same time, there's a couple of other companies that do grading. And I think this is a real big opportunity for them to step up and show that they're better at it. Like one of them, I think, is PGX and their cases mm. are basically considered tamper proof because they've oh. got like screws built into them and all that. Nice. OK, so maybe I'll go in that direction instead because I was going to maybe go with, I mean, you know, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but the other thing is that like the day that CGC put out their statement, like I got an email in my inbox and it was like, oh, we're grading DVDs now. (laughs) And I was just like, what? What? Like, like, and they're also grading like VHS cassettes and, and like cards and all sorts of stuff. And I'm just sitting there going like, well, cards makes a little bit more uh, sense because they're like trading. They also grade video games. Uh, yeah what jesus christ get out of here yeah get out i like i don't know like my my whole thing was like you know when everything is a collectible then nothing is a collectible That's just and it. i'm like you know i like i can understand some of it i guess where it's like well you know like i've got this like really rare thing that i want to get graded i want to like put it out on display as like an art piece or whatever which is cool but i don't know i everyone grab your laser they're discs great. they're next yeah. And I mean, like CGC is also, I think, grading action figures now. Like it's, I don't know, man. I, I don't know how to handle this. And like, it's all stuff from our childhood too. Like stuff from our childhood is like 30, so almost 40 years old. So I don't know what you want. Like we are, we are moving into antique territory. Yeah. I'm high value because I'm an antique. Like CGC is grading like toys and Funko. So yeah. It's like, Oof. whatever. Wow. Not, they won't be grading my Funkos because I'm that bitch who pulls them out the box. Yeah. Like, I just, I know that there's like toy grading and Funko grading. And I don't really have a bigger point to this. But something that I keep on thinking about is like, this is stuff that is meant to be consumed. And don't get me wrong. Like, I have slapped comics. But the reason I have slapped comics is because like, I'm, I kind of use them as like art to, to leave around and put on display. Like Sarah and I had a couple of issues set out during our wedding yeah like we had the jason goes to hell and we had the amazing spider-man annual where he gets married like it's it was cute 
I don't know. Yeah. But like, you know, as opposed to just letting it sit in a dark room, which I know a lot of people do because they don't want sunlight touching their precious comics, whatever. <laughs> My gosh. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's just, it, it feels like just kind of another symptom of like late stage capitalism where people are abusing the system. And I don't know if things are going to change or if people are just going to collectively shrug their shoulders and keep on doing what they've always been doing. So we'll it's see. Capitalism. So probably the latter. Probably the latter. I don't know. Anyway, well, that is the end of our episode. Thank you as always for listening, everyone. We will be back next week with another Dollar Bin Discovery. And then in two weeks, we will be back with an kind of part two, sort of part two to this episode, kind of a spiritual successor, if you will. Either way, Mike's hosting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're up, buddy. But yeah. <laughs> Thanks. But yeah, until then, we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TenCentTakes.com or shoot an email to TenCentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, or now. The official podcast account is TenCentTakes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Blue Sky, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. You can also send us mail now. We are at P.O. Box 940 in Pengrove, California, 94951. And Pengrove is spelled P-E-N-N-G-R-O-V-E. Send us stuff. <laughs> if you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there and support your local comic shop. 